Good morning. Welcome to church this morning as we come together as God's children and fellowship together and learn more about him and worship his name. Please stand and join us as we praise our God together through song.
Father, you are the God who saves, and we are grateful recipients of your salvation and your grace. Let our worship truly honor you and bring glory to you and bring change in us. And we ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Share what a greeting with others who are here in worship today. morning. I had the privilege this morning of waking up without power in our house. It apparently went out somewhere around five and it came on after I left this morning. But for those few moments when I got up this morning um, and we didn't have any power, the house temperature is a mere 52 degrees. I wondered if I'd have enough hot water to take a shower. I debated about just staying home because I figured you didn't want to smell me and all that kind of stuff. And I was wrestling with those very important decisions in life and wondering if my fish were going to die because there's no heater for the tank and all these kind of things. And, um, and then as I was coming here with the privilege of letting you folks know about our upcoming mission opportunity, um, it's last week it was in the bulletin. It's an announcement in your actual bulletin. Last week it was an insert and there's a few of these out in the back on the back table. Um, but if you're a college student and you are looking for an opportunity to help people in need, we are taking a group, um, to Union Beach, New Jersey. Uh, if you remember back when Hurricane Sandy came through, it just wiped out the whole shoreline area. And not only in New Jersey, but up, up further as well and inland a little bit. But even today, still, 
in Union Beach, New Jersey, 2,200 homes are still in rubble and need repair. 300 still need to be completely demolished and taken care of. And after a lot of trying to work things out, I had felt God leading us in that, perhaps in that direction this year with our college mission trip. And it took a while for things to come together. And we're going to be working with the Gateway Church of Christ. And they are, have been working as a um, devastation response team. And we're going to go working through them. And it looks like our main piece of uh, work will be putting together a playground for the area and the community and for children who have struggled with uh, just not much going on. I know they're getting hit with another snowstorm today, and um, a couple weeks ago, was it last week, there's a big snowstorm went through that area, and just a privilege it is that we can go and help and reach out these people. If you're a college student, you're interested in going, it's March 23rd through April 1st. Um, it will cost no more than $200 for you to go. Already, funds have come in to cover a lot of the gas and other expenses that are going along with the housing, etc. Please grab one of these, fill it out, or in your bulletin. Make sure you take your bulletin home with you and get in contact with me quickly so we can go through the application process. We'll have limited space, but we'd love to have you help us. Uh, Matthew, uh, Matthew 5 talks about, Let your light so shine before men that they may say you good works. And glorify your Heavenly Father in Heaven. That is our goal, to go work and faithfully serve those people that they might find Jesus Christ as well. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. And I do encourage you to take think seriously about whether that's something you want to do over your break. Just a couple of things to, um, to mention. Uh, because of the public school break this week, college break, break next week, we will not be having our children's Wednesday night ministries the next two weeks. So just please take note of that. And uh, also, uh, just getting, getting close to uh, the membership class. So if you are interested in membership, joining, thinking about that, want to know more about it, let me know right away, and I'll get you plugged into that class. It'll take place in the next couple of weeks. There are always prayer concerns, things that we, we're praying about related to the world, related to us, and we ask for God's grace in each of those situations. God has blessed us immensely with um, more than we could even describe. And we have the opportunity this morning to give back to God from the ways in which he's blessed us as the ushers come and assist us. fills the night it cannot hide the light whom shall I fear you crush the enemy underneath my feet you are my sword and shield those troubles linger still whom shall I fear I know who goes before Shit! 
pray together, if you'd like to come and use the altar rail as your place of prayer, please join me. Father, we are humbled by who you are. The God of angel armies, creator of all that is, ruler and sustainer of everything. You are the sovereign God. You have no equal, you have no rival. You are the ultimate of everything. And for us to come into your presence and to address you, to consider the fact that you hear us when we pray is more than amazing. And yet, you, the great God of all, invites us to call you Father and to come before you with the burdens and the concerns of our lives, which is what we do right now. In your power, heal our sickness, comfort our grief, give us direction about the future, give us every reason to trust you. When we are anxious and worried and filled with fear, give us a new glimpse of you with us. When life is filled with uncertainty, open our eyes to the certainty of who you are and of your love for us. Father, in this Advent season, or in this Lenten season, we pray, Father, that that you would give us a new image of the cross. Help us to, to see your love for us in Christ, who willingly goes to the cross for us and for the whole world. And let us be overwhelmed 
by your love for us in Christ. We pray, Father, for this world in which we live, the violence and hatred and bitterness that seems to more and more be defining our world. Sorrow and heartache, pain, hopelessness, despair. Father, in the midst of it all, help us to see the hope that is ours in Christ. We pray that you would bring peace to our world of violence, that you would bring joy where there is sorrow, that you would bring hope where despair reigns. And let us and your people everywhere be channels through which the world knows who you are. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for inviting us to pray and for answering in the way that you know is best in your eternal wisdom. We offer our prayers today through Christ, remembering the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Early in the morning, Jesus was taken from Caiaphas' house to the governor's palace. The Jewish authorities did not go inside the palace, for they wanted to keep themselves ritually clean in order to be able to eat the Passover meal. So Pilate went outside to them and asked, What do you accuse this man of? We would not have brought him to you if he had not committed a crime. Then you yourselves take him and try him according to your own law. We are not allowed to put anyone to death. This happened in order to make come true what Jesus had said when he indicated the kind of death he would die. Pilate went back into the palace and called Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? Does this question come from you? Or have others told you about me? Do you think I'm a Jew? It was your own people and the chief priests who handed you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom does not belong to this world. If my kingdom belonged to this world, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish authorities. No. My kingdom does not belong here.
Are you a king, then? You say that I am a king. I was born and came into the world for this one purpose. To speak about the truth. Whoever belongs to the truth... ...listens to me. <sighs> and what is truth?
Father, to you alone belongs the highest praise. We want to praise you not only with our mouths, but with our hearts. So as we continue in worship, help us to have hearts open to you, to hear you, and to receive your word to us, and to change us. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Do you ever wonder about the things that you remember from your childhood? I'm amazed at the things that stick in my mind. They get into my long-term memory. Now, you know, there are some things that, that you just, you know you're not going to forget. You know, the trip to Disneyland with your family. Or I remember, you know, times of going, the first time I went to a, uh, a Cincinnati Reds baseball game with my dad. You know, those are just monumental moments, and, and you, you don't forget those things. But it's those everyday things that stick in your mind, and you think, I wonder why I remember that. I, I was thinking about one of those this week of when I was in sixth grade. It was the first day of sixth grade, and we were in health class. And, um, you know, no sixth grader really likes health class. I know I didn't like health class, you know, talking about, you know, all the things that you deal with in health class sex education and, and first aid and, you know, and I really wasn't big on blood and dealing with those kinds of things. And I, I just was not looking forward to this class. But I remember that first day. We met in the home economics room for some reason. And the home ec room was bigger than most rooms. It had a couple of kitchens. It had, you know, an area for sewing machines and all the things that you would do when you're teaching home economics. And the room had two doors one door was just a normal door. You walk in and you're in the room, just like you would any other classroom. But the other door opened when you, when you came from the main hallway and you walked in that door. You went through just a little narrow hallway that eventually took you into the room. But on that hallway were shelves, and on those shelves were all kinds of home economic stuff. Things, you know, pots and pans and things for cooking and all kinds of sewing things. And all the stuff that you would use in home economics class. We're all on these shelves as you walk through there. Now, the home economics teacher was, I don't know, what word, I guess the word I would use is quirky. Uh, or maybe a better word would be, uh, I'll put it this way. She'd been teaching a long time, and it was starting to get to her. Uh, you, know, you know what I'm saying? Junior high kids teaching home economics to junior high kids. And, you know, I don't know how old she was as a sixth grader. I don't know, maybe she was 55, she seemed 75 to us. You know how you do with ages when you're, when you're young. But she, she had, was a very fastidious person. And she had made it very clear to anybody who used her room that nobody was supposed to go through this little narrow hallway door. She didn't want people messing with her home economic stuff, and, you know, rightly so. So on this first day of class, we had the lecture from our PE teacher who's teaching health don't go through that door, don't go through that door, and if you go through that door, there are going to be consequences, and I mean, he's just drilling it into us, you know, don't go through that door, and scaring us about what will happen if we go through that door. And you almost felt like that was the pathway to hell if you went through that door, you know, I mean, this is big stuff, you know, really drilling. So the bell rings, we all get up, we walk toward the other door, and we look back, and there's our teacher walking through that door that nobody else is supposed to walk through. And we're like, hey, what's up? 
And when we were finally able to catch him and talk to him about it and confront him about it, his answer is, the, it's the first time I ever remember hearing this answer, but he gave the, the classic response, do as I say, not as I do. And I think that sticks in my mind because maybe it was the, my introduction to adults' hypocrisy. You know, it, it was that moment when I realized people don't always do what they say. And I, of course, I'm sure I knew that. But maybe that's why it sticks in my mind. From that moment on, I have encountered many, many, many moments when people didn't do what they said they were going to do, what they were supposed to do, what they claimed to do. And quite frankly, I haven't either. Hypocrisy, duplicity is is one of the struggles that we have being sinful human beings. We make commitments. We we say we're going to do these things. And when push comes to shove, we do the opposite. If we were to go around the room this morning and give examples, every one of us would be able to give an example. We aren't going to do that. But if we did, we could. And the struggle with hypocrisy goes all the way back to our first mother and father who sinned in the Garden of Eden. And it has continued. You see it over and over and over again as we move through the scriptures. And we see it so blatantly, it seems to me, in the story of Christ's passion. In these last hours of Jesus' life, it just keeps popping up again and again. And over the course of the next few Sundays, we'll look at some of those places. And the first one is in the passage that we saw dramatized this morning. In John 18, Jesus it tells the story of Jesus going to the garden. He's in praying in chapter 17. He's praying in the garden. And as chapter 18 unfolds, here comes Judas and, and the, uh, the contingent from the, from the high priest's office that come and they arrest Jesus and all the disciples scatter and they bring Jesus to the high priest's home and they spend the night interrogating him, trying to get him to say something or do something that they can use against him. And not much comes up. So as morning light dawns, they decide they're going to take him to Pilate, who is the Roman governor over that area. Because as powerful as the Sanhedrin is, they don't have the ability to put anyone to death. They cannot, they cannot execute anyone for what they would consider a capital crime. Only the Romans can do that. And so they have to take Jesus to Pilate and convince Pilate that Jesus deserves execution. Now they have no basis for that. They have no grounds for that. But they have decided that they are going to conspire against Jesus and convince Pilate that this is what needs to happen. And you come to verse 28 and it says, Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? And they don't really have any charges. They say, If he wasn't a criminal, we wouldn't be here. Why do we need to mess with the details? Just trust us. Now, one of the things about that surprised me is that Pilate came out to them. I mean, that tells you how much power they have. And we'll get to that in, in a few weeks. 
But what amazes me is you have this scenario of these people who claim to be, who are religious leaders. And they follow all of the rituals and the rules of their religious faith. They do all the right things. And here they are conspiring to commit murder. And yet are so concerned about being able to eat the Passover that they won't go into Pilate's house. Do you see the the duplicity in that? That they they follow the rituals to a T and yet are willing to conspire to put an innocent man to death. Now that's I understand. It makes sense if you know the history of why they want to eat the Passover. That's not the question. The Passover is the biggest feast of the of the year for the Jews. It goes back to to Egypt when the people of Israel are in slavery for four hundred years. They've been enslaved in Egypt, and God sends Moses and He rescues them out of slavery. And a part of that process is sending the plagues on Egypt. And the last plague is the plague of death. And God says to them, you take blood and you paint it on the doorposts of your home and the angel of death will pass over your home and move on. And so this Passover meal was a meal they ate in haste. It was a very special meal about what they made and how they ate it. And every year after that, they celebrate this Passover. It is the high moment. And God keeps reminding them throughout the Old Testament, I am the God who rescued you from Egypt. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. I am the God who who brought you out of slavery. It's the defining moment when Israel truly becomes a nation as God's people. It is the turning point for them as a nation. It is a big deal. I was trying to think of what would might equate that for us. And the best I could come up with is Christmas. And, and, and for them, if you had to miss the Passover, it was a big deal. Now, for us, if you had to miss Christmas, that'd be a big deal. Now, the reason they would miss the Passover is because they had a rule, they had a law that didn't come out of scripture. I mean, they sort of a convoluted way of getting to it, but they had made a law in the first century that if a Jew entered a Gentile's house, the Jew was unclean. And that was, it could range from 24 hours to seven days or more sometimes, the rules about being unclean. And some of those rules are definitely in the Old Testament, but they had taken those rules and they continued to expand them. And one of those rules was, if you enter a Gentile house, you're unclean. And if you're unclean, you cannot eat the Passover. And if you eat the Passover being unclean, you are incurring God's wrath. It was a very serious thing to do. It would be breaking one of the most foundational laws of of their faith and their existence. So imagine it's Christmas at your home. You're not sick. You're not out of town. You're sitting in your bedroom and all the rest of your family is opening gifts and laughing and having fun and eating a big meal and you're missing all of it. Because you did something that defiled you from being a part of that. That's in a small way what it would be like for them 
to miss the Passover. So they have decided, you know, we're not going into the palace. We're not going to miss the Passover. That is too big of a deal. Conspiring to murder an innocent man? Not so much. And we are reminded of how blind we can be to the hypocrisy in our lives of thinking that if we just follow the rules, how we treat people doesn't make any difference. If we, just, if we just obey the scriptures, if we obey God's law, then how we relate to people doesn't matter. And we're wrong. And we struggle with this hypocrisy of doing some things right and then breaking all kinds of other things all the time. James Emery White tells of time he was spent in Oxford and he he would often go to the Eagle and Child Pub. And this was a place where C.S. Lewis and, and J.R.R. Tolkien and the other Oxford Christians would jo- come together, their group, and they would share their writings and, and, and spend time together. And usually every week they would gather at this pub. And it, it has become a tourist spot for people who are especially interested in C.S. Lewis. And they go to Oxford and they, they all want to go to the Eagle and Child Pub. Because this is where Lewis spent so much time. And you walk in there, it's on the walls filled with mementos of these great men of, of writing and, and faith. And lots of things about Lewis there. And people love to come to this pub. And as White said, he was sitting there one day and in came this group of tourists. And they came in and then they left. And when they left, the owner was muttering to himself, a stupid idiot Christians. Actually, he was a little more colorful of his language, but I won't do that. And, and he said, and White said, what's up? And he said, oh, you see these menus? Really nice menus. I spent two pounds a piece for these menus. I ordered hundreds of them. I have ten left. I said, what's up? He said, these tourists keep coming and stealing them. And he said, all these tourists who come in and want to, and are here to see things about C.S. Lewis, they take my menus. So, so I printed up paper ones so they can take these with them, but they don't want those. They want the real ones. They want the ones that cost me a lot of money. They've taken things off the walls. He said, so I've gotten to a place now where what's on the wall, it's all reproductions of the originals. I don't put the originals up on the walls anymore because people take them. And he said, the most, the most frustrating thing to me, he said, is aren't these people, most of these people who are so enamored with Lewis, aren't they Christians? And, and White said, I thought to myself, I suspect that the majority of the people who come here probably wouldn't, wouldn't even think about drinking alcohol in this pub. But see no big deal stealing from this proprietor to take a memento of something they think is important. And how many times do we convince ourselves that, that our duplicity is no big deal? And a lot of it boils down to we do the right things, then how we treat people doesn't matter. And so as the Christian church, we initiate the crusades because we're defending our faith, even if it means slaughtering Muslims. Martin Luther, great great man of, of the Protestant Reformation, the father of the Protestant Reformation, 
the one whose shoulders so much that we have now rests, still had a blind spot in his life about the Anabaptists. And he, he encouraged the persecution of the Anabaptists because they didn't believe the way he did. And these were godly, holy people. But they didn't see things the way he saw them, so who cares how you treat them? And you and I can come to a worship service and we sing the songs and we pray the prayers and and we read the scriptures and we engage in this time of worship and we feel wonderful about it. And then we walk out and we're nasty to people. Or we spend time in the prayer room and we spend an hour praying and it's just a glorious time with God. And we walk out and somebody says something and it sends us off and we just go off on them. And we walk away not thinking that much about it because we've done the right spiritual things and we have a hard time recognizing that obedience to God is not just about doing rituals. It's not just following certain practices. It's about how we live our lives with people every day. I remember growing up as a child in very conservative part of the church. And my dad was a pastor in the Wesleyan Church, and that's where we lived was very, very conservative. And, and there, was, there were lots of rules about what you could and couldn't do. You know, men could not, this is in, I'm talking 60s and 70s. So men couldn't have long hair. Women couldn't wear, most of the rules were about women, I've noticed that. Women couldn't, have, couldn't cut their hair, couldn't wear makeup, couldn't wear jewelry, had to wear long dresses, long sleeves, you know, all of these rules and regulations. And if you did those things, then you must be right with God. That was a sign that, that you, were, you were in the right place spiritually. And I remember going to these camp meetings and, and watching my parents interact with people who treated them terribly because my mom wore some makeup. Or because my dad, in a day and age where they said men wear white shirts and and thin black ties, my dad wore colored shirts and wide, colorful ties. And they were ostracized for those things. And somehow they couldn't see the duplicity of their behavior of rules and regulations that maybe had some value and how they treated people. Now let me be clear to you as I have sort of felt a little bit self-righteous about the way those people treated our family, it's almost immediately God taps me on the shoulder and says, and what about you and the way you treat them? Oh, yeah. Let's not talk about that. I want to talk about those people. It's just there, and we all wrestle with it. And we get caught up in it. And sometimes the, more, the, the further along we are in our faith, the more susceptible we are to, to this duplicity because we start thinking we've arrived. And we, and, and we understand the rules and we understand the rituals and we, we figured it out. And we've convinced ourselves that if I can just create the checklist and I can check all my stuff off, then I'm good. And it doesn't matter that much about how I treat people. That's just life. That's just the way it is. They'll get over it. As long as I do the rules right. And we become arrogant about our walk with God. We become arrogant about how much we know. 
And we convince ourselves that what we know is all that matters, not how we treat people. I'm convinced that there is a, there's a formula. I think this is right. Obedience to God, which is a good thing, plus mistreating people equals disobedience to God. Obedience to God, doing the things that Scripture tells us are right, plus mistreating people equals disobedience to God. If you're into math, you know what happens if you have a, you could have 99 even numbers and you add one odd number into that list, your answer is going to be odd. And it's sort of the same thing is that we can do all the right rituals and we can follow all the right right laws and, and do the right things. But if we don't treat people with love and kindness, we've missed it. We've misunderstood. Jesus says, when asked, how do you sum up the law? Jesus says, love. Love God first and love other people. And that means the people who agree with us and the people who don't agree with us. The people who are for us and the people who are against us. The people who love Jesus and the people who hate Jesus. How we treat people is a sign that we get it. And the the answer is not to say, well, I'll just throw out worrying about obedience. If I, forget, if I forget obedience to what God's calling me about the laws, then I don't need to worry about it. Well, I don't think that's the answer. Disobedience is not the answer. Ignoring the things that God says are important, that's not the answer. The answer is realizing that the laws God's given us are important. They're for us. They're to help us understand life better and to live with more joy and peace. But as important as those things are, if we don't... If those don't cause us to treat people with kindness and love and compassion, we've misunderstood them. And we've misunderstood God. Because like the Jewish religious leaders, we have come to believe that God is more interested in protocol than in people. That God is more interested in knowing what's right than doing what's right. That that God is more, what God desires for us is that is is that we be right instead of doing right. A.W. Tozer said that that there are are times when we can get so wrapped up in rules and laws and, and doing even right things that our sinful nature, our arrogance, can lead us into those things turning out wrong. And so in our diligence to be bold, we become brazen. In our desire to be frank, we become rude. What we desire to be watchfulness becomes suspicion. And we have moved from doing what is right and allowing our arrogance and allowing our pride to turn those things that are right 
into things that are wrong because of how we treat people. The only solution to this this whole struggle is the cross. The only solution we have is to come before the cross, to acknowledge our sin, to, to come humbly to the cross, acknowledge that we have so far to go that, that we are helpless without Christ. And we bow before the cross in weakness, acknowledging that we have not got it all figured out, that we don't have all the answers, that we, have a, that we are on this journey and have such a long way to get to the end. And all we can hope for is the grace of God in Christ. And it is that spirit of humility, that spirit of acknowledging our weakness, as we talked about a few weeks ago, acknowledging our brokenness, that is what will allow God to work change in us and to open our eyes so that we live in the balance and the tension of of obedience and love that are not mutually exclusive. Paul tells to the Philippians that there are he cautions them about some folks in their church who are who are leading them down a path of legalism. It's all about rituals, it's all about the laws, you got to do these things and Paul says, "Look, if anybody could boast about about their heritage and the things they've done in terms of the law, it would be me." And he lists off all these things about who he is and what he's done to be the most admired Jew possible. And then he says, but I count all of that as rubbish, trash. The only thing that matters is knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection and his sufferings. For we are surrendering ourselves to the one who gave himself for us. And standing there on the steps of Pilate's palace, it would have been so easy for Jesus to turn on those religious leaders and lay them out. But he doesn't. He loves them. He loves them so much that he lets them lead him to the cross. And you and I are called to let him so work in us that we live out that same kind of spirit. That we live in obedience that is characterized by love. We become, in the words of Craig Barnes, tributaries of God's love. To the whole world. A number of years ago, I read, I read a book, and the guy in the book, the guy made this statement: In the church, there are two kinds of people. In the church, there are two kinds of people. There are hypocrites, and there are forgiven hypocrites. It is surrendering to the cross to Christ that makes the difference. Heavenly Father, you know our struggle. 
with obedience. You've called us to obey and, and we want to obey, but we can get so caught up in obedience that we don't see the importance of love. Father, let us be people who obey lovingly. Chip away at the hypocrisy in our lives. And put on our minds and our hearts, even right now, a person, a situation that we need to address. so that we are more like Christ. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Please stand as we sing. Take all I am, Lord, and all that I cling to. You are my Savior, I owe everything to. Take all the treasures that lie in my storehouse. They cannot follow when I enter your house. So
Take all my hunger for all that's forbidden, every desire and sin I keep hidden. Search me and know me, I want to bring to you life that is holy, sanctified through. of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.